All right, that was very thorough, Caleb. That was good. I, I, I almost don't have anything to say now, which is probably good. Um, trying to figure out how, how to deal with the space here. So as, as Caleb said, we go to a, a very similar church in Georgetown, Texas, and it's called Emmaus, and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of ordered the same. It has... Um, no, no, about, about, the, about the same size as this one as well. And so um, I, I want to tell anyone that is maybe, maybe, the, maybe you live in this area and you've never been here to the Grove, um, I want to tell you something. And I'm not, I'm not going to tell you where to go to church, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say it this way. If I lived, if I lived here in this area, I would go to the Grove. I would take my family here. I think this is just a very special place. Um, I have with me this morning, I've got my, my tour manager, Chris. Here is, he's got the muscles right there. Uh, I have my brother, Tyler, my oldest brother, Tyler. My mom is here with me this morning. And, uh, and then my, our two bigs, as we call them, London, who's 11, and Lincoln, who's 9. And then we have a little Maverick at home. He turns 2 in August. He's with, he's with my wife. And hopefully they're at Emmaus Church right now. <laughs> Let's pray and get started. Father, it's not lost on us that it is an incredible privilege to gather on a Sunday morning publicly and worship you. And we know that many people Many brothers and sisters are not able to do this publicly like we are. So we don't, we don't ever want to take that for granted. And we praise you for, for this opportunity and for this church. I ask that you humble me this morning. That you allow me to be your mouthpiece and your servant. And disrupt anything within me that is seeking approval from man. We pray for the people that came here this morning, maybe skeptical or wary of organized religion. We pray that you, just like your word says, pierce them like a two-edged sword. Because that's what your word does. And it calls us for not organized religion, but a relationship with your son, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want to start with a story, and I'm, I'm going I'm to bet that a lot of people have heard this story to some extent, and it is about the, the five missionaries that went to Ecuador in the 1950s, bringing the gospel. They worked a long time to be able to reach a, a tribe in Ecuador, and this is the Wyodani tribe of Ecuador, and um, they're the most violent tribal people in the 20th century that we know of. These missionaries finally get there, they finally find a way to get there, they befriend the tribe, and then this happens on January 8th, 1956, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, and Roger Udarian were speared to death by six tribal warriors, their bodies hacked by machetes 
and then unceremoniously tossed into the river and eaten by fish and turtles. A few weeks later, Life magazine published the story with extensive photos of the tragedy. The shocking news reached the whole world. Credibility was strained to see any sense of it, unless you were Rachel Saint or Elizabeth Elliot. Rachel was the sister of Nate Saint and Elizabeth, the wife of Jim Elliot. These women forged ahead, making inroads with the perpetrators of these brutal murders. Within a few years, listen to this, the warriors who had killed their family members were transformed by the gospel and gave their lives to Christ. That part of the story is the popular part. And like I said, I think maybe a few of you have heard it. But there's more to it. And I want to finish it. But first I want to look at the Bible. I want to continue this discussion in 1 Peter. And those of you that attend church here regularly know that Caleb's been working through 1 Peter for the past five weeks. And regarding this study that he's calling living as exiles, because Peter was writing to persecuted Christian exiles scattered around Asia Minor. And Caleb texted me and kind of summed it up a little bit with, with what you guys have been talking about. He said... The whole letter, talking about 1 Peter, is really a letter of hope. And that hope is living because it's based on a living and risen Savior. It is also guaranteeing a promised inheritance that is kept in heaven for us while God keeps us with his power. And if you look, about halfway through the first chapter of 1 Peter, Peter begins challenging the Christian exiles to be holy. As in, Pure, blameless, set apart, right? Different than the world. Verse 15 says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. But on what basis, right? How could a wretched sinner be called to holiness? A sinner like you or me. Peter says, on this basis, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Mm. What beautiful gospel imagery from Peter the fisherman who was an eyewitness to these very things. If you're a Christian, you are healed, forgiven, ransomed, redeemed, restored, Reborn on what basis? By the precious blood of Christ shed as the once for all sacrifice, satisfying the wrath of God caused by your rebellion. That is why Peter is calling believers to be set apart from everyone else. Because you are. He's challenging us to be holy. But what does holiness look like in a Christian? 
How could you see holiness? How could you act on holiness? What is the proper response to this kind of challenge? How can you measure your growth of holiness? That's what today's text is going to show us. If you look with me, 1 Peter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. And I am going to read out of the English Standard Version. And if you have your Bible, I would encourage you just to leave it open because we're going to just going to be here this whole time. And I want to show you some things in here, okay? So that's, again, that's 1 Peter 1, 22, verse 2, 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Beautiful. The response to Peter's call to holiness after a new birth by obedience to the truth should produce growth in three areas. Number one, a sincere love for the brethren. Number two, repentance from sin. And number three, desire for spiritual growth. And these could be used as a measuring stick for Christians' growth, right? Years ago, as our kids learned to walk, we wrote on a piece of door trim in the garage to mark their height. And we used Sharpie marker, put a little dash at the, at the top of where their head was, and then added their name and their age to it. You've probably done something like this. And when we moved and sold the house, a few months go by, and there was a knock on the door. And it was the guy that bought our old house. And he had with me in his hands, he had with him in his hands the, the, the actual trim boards that he tore off the garage. And he said, I pulled these off the garage. I just, I couldn't have, I just figured you're going to need them. And he was right, because, because my kids love to stand next to him and, and see how much they've grown. We like to measure our growth. All of us do. Otherwise, we lose perspective and could lose our motivation that way. So here, Peter is laying out a roadmap for us believers. And I find it interesting, and I think it might be an interesting thought, that if we're born again then why do we even need this kind of motivation? Right, why, why, don't, why don't we just do it? And this is a poor analogy, but I talk about it with my wife sometimes. Maybe it could be helpful. It's, it's like a new birth could be akin to a butterfly born from a cocoon. The butterfly is a new creature. It has new cravings, new desires, new purpose. And when this happens to a new Christian... We need a more mature butterfly to nudge us towards our new path, to point us in the right direction. It's kind of like, hey, 
I, I could tell you why it doesn't feel right anymore to be hanging around these old caterpillars. You don't need to be walking around all these twigs munching on leaves. You have a much greater purpose now. You see, you see those wings you got? You see those wings? You should be spreading them out. You know that craving you have right now? That's for nectar. And you're going to know you're mature because eventually you're going to be enjoying the sweetness of the whole garden. And the, the new butterfly might say, how could I possibly enjoy the whole garden? Because you could fly. In this letter, Peter is calling us to fly. So I want to walk through these three products of Christian growth. Then I want to discuss the peculiar way that Peter orders this letter. And finally, I want to revisit the story of the missionaries in Ecuador and show you why I think all of this is relevant to believers today. You got your Bibles ready? We're going to take this journey. Okay. Peter's first measure of growth is a sincere love for the brethren. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Holy living demands purification. How do we do that? David asked the same question. Psalm 19, 119. How could a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then what's the result of this purification that Peter's talking about in verse 22? Sincere brotherly love. Tour manager Chris admitted that that, that word sincere kind of sounds weak. It could sound weak. It could also be said this way, earnest love. The kind of love that only comes from a pure heart. To love earnestly means to love with conviction. Or eagerly, or intensely, or zealously, or resolutely. The old King James says, fervently. This, this could also mean without hypocrisy. A changed life of a Christian should show evidence by a changed relationship with God's other children. This kind of loving could come only from a changed heart, from one whose motives are pure, who seeks to give more than he takes. What does sincere brotherly love look like? And by the way, brotherly is always brethren, which is brothers or sisters. What does that look like for a student on a Monday morning when you're feeling exhausted, you just want to keep walking, but you can't help but notice another student that looks troubled or lonely? What about the older gentleman that's just trying to disciple a young brother who seems eager to learn the Bible, but he keeps on backsliding into the same sin? It would just make life so much easier just to give up on him. Sometimes a sincere brotherly love reminds us to selflessly encourage one another. Just a few weeks ago, I was in a hotel room in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I was sending messages back and forth to this atheist in Germany. He's a friend. and I have a lot of friends like this that I correspond with that, that they help sharpen my apologetics. 
and I, I enjoy it. But on this one particular morning, I was feeling a little discouraged. You see, this German friend, he's not just an atheist, but he's a speaker and an author, an educated debater, and a fierce opponent to Christianity. He's a good challenge for me. Our conversations go deep, and I like him. And I think sometimes he likes me too. But there are times when I hurt for his despair, his lostness, his hopelessness, his hardness of heart. I know, like I prayed earlier, God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. But this guy's really calloused. And I sat on the edge of the bed after a few back-and-forth voice messages, and I just felt defeated in my evangelism. And right then, as I was holding my phone, it lights up. And it's a call from a secure line. It's, it's another friend, a Christian brother, in an oppressed country. He was recently commanded to stop preaching the gospel or he will be hunted and killed. And he decided to stay there. He wasn't calling me to complain. Instead, he was calling to encourage me. <laughs> he was sitting there in hiding, writing from the Psalms. And he's, he didn't have a Bible, so this is all from memory. They're not allowed to have Bibles there. He said, Brother Granger, this is the voice text. I recorded Psalm 22 as a song in my language. And because you are a songwriter also, I... I truly hope it blesses and encourages you today in our common love for our Lord. <laughs> I was out there thinking about him and thinking about the German atheist. Thinking about the love another Christian brother had for me, someone I've never even met on the other side of the world. As I sat there in that hotel room, I, I wept tears of joy. When we act on the God-enabled love that we have for other brothers, other believers, we have no idea how God is going to use that to build someone up. The next mark of measuring your Christian growth that Peter talks about here is repentance. So look at 1 Peter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Ooh, there is a forcefulness in that phrase. So put away, right? To do that is to repent, to turn away from them, purge yourselves of them, and when you do, the Word can do its work. We see throughout Scripture that it is not the completion of the purge as so much as the action of purging constantly that's the evidence of new birth. It's the open, honest struggle that demonstrates true hope in Christ. Why does Peter name this specific list? These are five relationship killers. Sins of attitude and speech, which can and will drive wedges between believers. You know, we live in an outrage culture. These sins are just tools of the trade. You spend a few minutes on Twitter, you're going to see all of it. Malice is wicked ill will. Deceit is deliberate dishonesty. Hypocrisy is pretended piety and love. Envy is resentful discontent. And slander, that's just backbiting lies. 
None of these should have any place in those who were born again. What does this kind of repentance, this putting away, look like for a newly single mother in the heat of a malicious custody battle who has just cut her ex-husband to size with her sharp words? Or how about a girl just about to turn 30 years old, still single, not even dating, who is slowly growing apart from her sisters because she can't force herself to be happy with their wedding engagements or talk about how pretty the ring is. Or the couple that's struggling with infertility who can't even log into Instagram for fear they're going to see another couple with yet another baby announcement. Maybe this time it's number three. Must be nice. When you're a believer or a butterfly, it is still so tempting to continue eating like the caterpillars. But if you don't put it away, you're going to ruin your appetite for the good stuff. That brings me to Peter's final mark on measuring a mature Christian. That's the desire for spiritual growth. Look at verse 2-2. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, he doesn't mean that the longing saves you. He means that it allows you to grow up within the salvation already secured for you in Christ. And Peter isn't speaking to baby Christians here. Instead, he's saying that we should crave and delight in God's word with the intensity that a baby craves milk. Did you know that reading the Bible is addictive once you get the taste? What we taste in Scripture is the Lord. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew 5. Job said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Jeremiah 15. You could just hear the longing for spiritual milk in these words. Is that you this morning? Can you say and believe? Believe, just like Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, my soul pants for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Is that you? What does this look like for the working father under such stress and high demand from his boss and his wife and his children when there's no more time left in the day? He sets his alarm early before anyone in the house gets up. It's still dark outside. Cup of coffee and a soft chair. Picking back up where he left off the day before in his Bible. Saying, Lord, how, how will your word speak to me today? How will you grow my understanding about who you are? 
There's nothing more important than this time of day. Every single day. I remember when the Lord saved me from a weak, deceptive, cultural Christianity that is so widely spread in our society today. I called myself a Christian my whole life. I knew the gospel intellectually. But I didn't know who God was as revealed in His Word. And I was born again through John chapter 14. This is when the disciple says, Lord, how is it that you manifest yourself to us, but not to the rest of the world? Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. That is not unconditional love. That is profoundly conditional. And right then I just knew. I knew I was starving for His Word. I knew I was redeemed. I knew I was, I was born again. But I, I, how am I supposed to keep a Word that I didn't even know all of it? Jesus said, if anyone loves me, if anyone loves me, He will keep my Word. <laughs> I was exposed So I went home, I dusted off my Bible, I started at Matthew 1. Without devotionals, without cute little little scripture sayings, I started right there, Matthew 1, verse 1. And I started like my life depended on it, and it did. And once I got to the end of Revelation, I thought, well, Jesus said that the prophets were talking about him. So I better start back in Genesis and go all the way to Malachi through that. And I just couldn't stop. I was just feasting, and the the more I read, the more I feasted, the more I craved it. I knew then that the lack of hunger I had for His Word was an indication that I was filling myself up with something else that was not growing me. We landed in Orlando yesterday. We were all hungry, getting off the plane, ready to go to a restaurant, sit down and get some good food. Walking to the airport, my daughter London says, Oh, Daddy, can we get a pretzel? I was like, well, baby, we're going to go to a restaurant and get some food. She said, please, Dad, just let me get this pretzel. It's like, well, just trust me. Just wait till we get to the restaurant. So we go, we drop our bags off at the hotel. My son Lincoln goes, oh, Daddy, can I get Funyuns? I was like, buddy, guys, we're going to get the food. We're going to get real food. We don't need pretzels and Funyuns. But that's what we do. That in the same way, we ruin our appetites for God's Word every day. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, What a good thing it is to have spiritual hunger and thirst. When people are not hungry, you may set a fine meal before them, and they will turn up their noses at it. Oh, but let a man come, fresh from the field, hungry. Down he sits, no matter how rough the fare. He only wants it to be sweet, wholesome, and nutritious. He cuts himself huge slices for himself and feeds to the full. Give me a congregation of hungry hearers with eyes that seldom turn from the preacher and with ears that catch every word. God grant us that spiritual hunger. So we could say like Peter in the psalmist that 
We have tasted that the Lord is good. Those are the three measurements of growth that Peter gives us. But if you have your Bibles open and you've been following along, I hope that you noticed something. I skipped the entire middle section. Three points. Love for the brethren, repentance, and spiritual hunger. But Peter doesn't sequence his letter that way, does he? Look with me. Right after Peter talks about love, he takes a turn. He interrupts the list and he says this. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's peculiar. I mean... Why didn't he just start the passage that way instead of squeezing it into the middle? I mean, we know that being a Christian and bearing fruit happens after the new birth. We know this. So why doesn't Peter just say, since you've been born again, now go love your brothers, put away sin, hunger for spiritual growth. That would have made for a much more linear sermon this morning. But that's not how Peter wrote the letter. Actor Matthew McConaughey, in his memoir, Green Lights, wrote these words for what he calls a sole objective to life. Hopefully it's medicine that tastes good, a couple of aspirin instead of the infirmary, a spaceship to Mars without needing your pilot's license, and going to church without having to be born again. In contrast... Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. So what is new birth? John says, it's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 13. And you say, where does it come from? Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3, 8. Paul says in Titus 3, 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can obtain yourself. But how does this regeneration happen? What's the mechanism used for this? Through, through the living and abiding Word of God. Hearing. Abiding means enduring, lasting, persisting, continuing, remaining, surviving, eternal, unending, constant, permanent, stable, unchanging. And if that's not enough, Peter reinforces this with Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Yes, this means we have a big, unchanging God. But it also means we have 
little unchanged Bibles. There are religions today that claim there has been an apostasy and that over so many years and under so many people and all these great truths have been removed from the Bible. But that's not what this verse says. It says that whenever everything else on earth falls, this word of the Lord remains forever. Mm. But I'm trying to figure out why Peter put all of that after he challenges us to love our brothers and sisters. Well, it doesn't take a long journey through the Bible to find our answer. Colossians 3.8 is where it begins. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Notice the parallels between Paul's writing and Peter's. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. That's the rebirth, which is being renewed in knowledge hearing, knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Here's my point. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It is love. Paul ends with it. Peter begins with it. But either way, it binds everything together in Christ, who is all and in all. To the Corinthians, Paul says it this way. If I have all faith, if, if I have all faith, if I have all the faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Do you know, you know what he's saying here? If I have all the faith, but I don't have love, I ain't got anything. He says, if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. <laughs> Are we underestimating what he means here? Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this, here it is, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How do you know? How do you know, Jesus? If you have love for one another. Hmm. That's why Peter, one of those twelve, puts love as the first mark of Christian growth and separates it from the other measurements. Friend, if, if you 
are outside of Christ, even by God's grace, if, if you feel love today, the Bible says that that will end with your death. And there will be no more of it, only suffering. And it would be hating, it would be hating you for me not to warn you of that reality. The kind of love Peter's talking about only begins when you run to the Savior. When you fully surrender to Jesus, the spotless lamb, crucified as the once for all sacrifice for the sins of his people, and then resurrected in glory because the debt was paid in full. It is finished. Turn from your old life and trust in him. You'll never be saved otherwise. There's only this door of mercy, and it's Jesus. He has never rejected a sinner yet, and he's not about to start with you. Even the worst of the worst. Even the vilest of the vile can find mercy in him. Peace in him. Hope in him. Life in him. The vilest of the vile, the worst of the worst. I believe that would qualify with one of those murderers in Ecuador. And so I mentioned that you might have heard this story. Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Roger Guderian, how they were brutally murdered by the tribe that they were evangelizing to. You might have heard how Nate's sister and Jim's wife served in bringing that same tribe to Christ. But in light of 1 Peter, I think we could be extremely encouraged by the rest of that story. Later in life, Nate's son, that's one of the guys that got murdered, one of the missionaries, the head missionary, Nate's son Steve came to learn the horrifying details of his father's death. But Steve harbors no bitterness. He does not suffer any kind of delusionment at God's ways. Instead, he is uncharacteristically grateful for someone whose father was so callously slaughtered. When Steve was five years old, the year of his father's murder, he was waiting for him to make good on his promise to teach him to fly. The missionary aviation fellowship pilot was not only his dad, but his hero. Nonetheless, Steve would never change the course of history, even if he could. He says, unashamedly, God planned my dad's death. Who says that? A man who would come to be one of Steve's dearest friends was a man he would call grandfather. His name was Menkaye. He was one of the six warriors who killed Steve's father. Menkaye was a killer without mercy in 1956. Fifty years later, Steve knew him as the eternal object of mercy, that of his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Menkaye adopted Steve as his own son. And the love between them grew as deep as human affections can extend. <laughs> Only the secret mysteries of God's providence could plan such a strange good to emerge from evil. <laughs> what? Can you imagine? If that is not a testimony to the love Peter is talking about. 
only the strange mysteries of God. This kind of love can come only from those that have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted?